0: Podcast. New City is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Isaac Thibodeau is preaching from Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and the message is called the Baptism of the Messiah. We hope you are blessed by the message today. There are some texts that lend themselves to more practical matters and there are others that lend themselves to more theological matters. Today, this is going to be something that's a little bit more on the theological side of things. There's not a whole lot in the text practically for us to obey, but I hope once we learn about this, um, there will be some conclusions that we can draw um, from what we learn and how to obey and and worship Christ better. Um, My main goal with this sermon, because it is theological in nature, nature, is... I want to lift up Christ and I want Christ to be seen from this text um, because the scripture says in uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 that, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So when we see Christ, when we see him for who he truly is, it's impossible to not be changed. It's impossible to not be changed. When we see him we will be transformed. When we see and believe, we'll be transformed. So I hope that, is, um, that's, that will be the case today. So I'll tell you right off the bat what the main point of the sermon is, um, just so we're all headed in the same direction. Um, the main point of this passage is that Jesus is anointed as the Messiah and recognized as God's Son. So that's the main point of what's going on here. He is anointed as the Messiah and recognized as God's son. So that's what this this passage is about. So if you want to go home now, you can. That's fine. You heard the sermon already. You're good. Just kidding. Might be warmer back home, but stay here. (laughs) Okay, so um, the first thing we're going to do in verses 13 to 14, we see um, some of the background. Joel preached last week about um, John's baptism and uh, John the Baptist specifically. Um, And he... um, brought up some absolutely excellent points that I want to piggyback off of at the beginning of the sermon um, so that it helps fill the context for uh, Jesus' baptism. So we're going to talk a little bit about what this baptism even was about to begin with, what the, the baptism of the Jews was about. Because when we just read the, what we just read there in, in the Gospel of Matthew, without knowing the historical context we might be tempted to think that this baptism of John was a new thing that he invented. Um, just as sort of this cool thing, hey, let's get in the river and you know, we'll, we'll dunk you in and you're going to stop sinning. <laughs> like, that's, that's not what it was. There's a, there's a huge context, historical context to what baptism was for the Jews. Uh, baptism was a very common practice in that day. For hundreds of years it had been. But it wasn't, it didn't mean the same things that Christian baptism means for us today. Which is why we can get a little confused when we read this. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that background is so it makes sense. Um, so in, in the few centuries before Jesus came, baptism was a practice that the Jews created to, uh, at, in case a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism in case a Gentile wanted to become part of Israel. so There were many things that Gentiles had to do. Um, they, if they were male, they had to be circumcised if they wanted to be part of Israel. Um, they had to obey all the, the Mosaic code. So not just the moral laws, but also the ritual laws and the, all those things like that, like sacrifices and abstaining from certain foods. You had to do that. Um, but one thing they... Um, they designed, or or one practice they they came up with, a ritual, was baptism. And what that symbolized was the crossing of the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan. That's what baptism symbolized. Because Israel had crossed the Red Sea and crossed the Jordan in their history. Even though every individual Israelite after did not do that, they did in their ancestors. Through their ancestors, they crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan. Gentiles didn't have that background. They weren't the physical seed of Abraham and of, and, uh, of Isaac and Jacob and all the tribes. They, they didn't have that history. So in order to identify them with that history, they would be baptized. That's why it's significant that he's baptizing in the Jordan River. Jordan River is connected to when the Israelites were leaving the wilderness and entering the promised land. So that's the background. So this was a very common practice um, for Jews to baptize Gentiles into Israel amongst other ceremonies. But the scandal of what John the Baptist is doing, to the Pharisees at least, is that John was not baptizing Gentiles. He was baptizing Jews. He was baptizing Jews. Which was very controversial and really made the Pharisees angry. Because by baptizing the Jews, what John was implying quite explicitly was that it's not enough for you to be the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is not enough. And we know that because when, uh, we know that's what John was, was saying because when the Pharisees were attacking him and accusing him. He said, "Um, don't tell me that you have Abraham for your father because God is able to make from these stones children of Abraham. So that, that was their presumption was, oh, because we're the descendants of Abraham, we are God's chosen people. And therefore, we're better than everyone else. That was the mindset that they had. But what John was saying is, no... You, you're a, a brood of vipers. You're snakes. You don't, you're not truly Abraham's child. You're not, you're not a son of Abraham. Sons of Abraham obey God. They have the faith of Abraham. So what John was doing by baptizing Jews is he's saying, you need to go through a new exodus. You need to enter the new promised land. That's what you need to do. Because the old... You just looking at it physically, I'm physically descended from these people, is not enough. God doesn't care about that. God doesn't care about that. He cares about the heart. As we'll see later, a true Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but one inwardly. Circumcision, not outwardly, but circumcision of the heart. That's what God cares about. That's what counts. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, a little bit more. But what John is doing here in his mission, as Joel covered last week, is he's preparing the way for the Messiah. He's preparing the way. and Just just listen to this this passage from Isaiah 40 that John the Baptist quotes to the Pharisees um, in in the other Gospels. He says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain filled and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John was preparing the way for the Messiah by telling the Jews at the time, hey, the Messiah is coming, you need to repent. You need to go through a new exodus that he's going to bring. You need to be ready for this, because this is big. What the Messiah is gonna do you, you, your heart needs to be right with God in order to, to take part in this. So all of that, all of that is, we could obviously go way more into that, but that, that's just some background as to why this baptism is so significant. So now we're going to talk about what it meant for Jesus with all that background in mind. So no doubt most, if not all of you, have heard sermons or at least in a sermon heard a reference to the baptism of Jesus. And um, there are many reasons um, that people have postulated or suspected um, as to why Jesus got baptized. And I'll just rattle off a couple of them that you guys have probably heard before. Um, So uh, he was baptized for our example. So he was baptized because we're supposed to get baptized. He was baptized first so we could follow in his footsteps, that kind of thing. Um, Others have said it symbolized his death and resurrection. It was like a precursor to that, his death and resurrection. Um, others have said he baptized, he was baptized to identify with us in our sins. So obviously he never sinned, but he got baptized to identify with us in, in our sins. Um, now, and there's you know, several other reasons, um, and I don't think any of those are particularly wrong by any means. I think there's uh, aspects of truth to all of those, really. Um, but I don't think those are the central reasons why Jesus was baptized. I think there are at least two major things um, that we can see right from the Gospel of Matthew that maybe, um, if we're not looking carefully, we, we might miss, but I actually think they are the two reasons, main reasons why Jesus was baptized. So I'll tell you um, both of them up front, and we'll, we'll dig into to each of them within the Gospel of Matthew and other passages of Scripture. Um, So the first is Jesus was baptized to anoint him as the Messiah. So this is his anointing ceremony as the Messiah and God's son. The second, Jesus is replaying or retelling in his life the story of Israel. In his life, he is replaying or retelling the story of Israel. He's fulfilling Israel. So we're going to talk about both of those. First, we're going to talk about the anointing as Messiah. So let's look right into our text here at verse 15. It says, but Jesus answered him, this is John talking to John the Baptist, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness. So that to us seems pretty vague, fulfill all righteousness. What exactly does that mean? Obviously, it was not vague to the readers, the original audience of this letter, and to the hearers of Jesus saying these things, because Matthew does not take the time to explain what that means. Whereas the other gospel writers, um, and even Matthew sometimes, when there were certain things that his context, the people he's writing to would not understand, they would explain like what, what this means. Obviously, the Jews in the first century knew what fulfill all righteousness meant. So we're going we're gonna to see that here. Um, right, right in the, uh, the context of this, what do we see immediately? We see Jesus is baptized, and then right after that, he goes into the wilderness. And then he picks his disciples, and he, he starts his ministry. So this is the starting point of his messianic ministry. Before this, he did not make himself known as the Messiah. People knew, a few people knew, that he was the Messiah, obviously his his family and um, some other people, John the Baptist and and others. But he had not made himself known until this point was the the start of that, the messianic ministry that he had. So, one thing that I think is so awesome about this, think back to... This, uh, like, first, the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel was a prophet during the time of King Saul and King David. And King Saul, of course, was the first king of Israel. And he started out really good. And then, because of pride, he, he fell away and he, he, he disobeyed God. And um, God eventually took the throne from him. And then what happened? While Saul was still king, while he was still king, God told Samuel to go and anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king. And eventually, that after going through all the brothers, uh, it eventually uh, landed on David the youngest. That was the one God wanted to be king. So while Saul was still king, David was anointed by the prophet to be king. He didn't actually become king at that point. He became king later on but he was anointed as king. And that is exactly what we see here in Jesus' baptism. We see the prophet, the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, anointing the king, Jesus, before he actually became king. And when did he become king? He became king through his death, resurrection, and ascension, where he is now seated at the right hand. And we're going to get into that later. But... um, so his anointing was his baptism. His, inaugu- his, his actual, um, uh, what's the word for it? It starts with a C. Coronation, Coronation. that's it. Thank you, guys. I've used it before. No, I forgot it now. Uh, it's in my notes somewhere. Um, he was inaugurated as king at the baptism, and he is coronated, actually crowned as king through his death, resurrection, and ascension. Okay? So, we can get into that a little bit more later, but I wanted to make sure that's clear right up front. Um, th- this is so cool that we see the prophet anointing the king, and this is the pattern we see through Israel's history. And now the final prophet of the old covenant anoints the one who will bring about the new covenant, the new king. It's just, it's just glorious. It's so awesome to see, right? It's, I, I, think it's, I think it's awesome. Um, And so so that's why John the Baptist's role is is so important. It's, It's massive here. But Jesus came as the Messiah. And one thing that will be helpful for us to know is there were actually multiple Messiahs. Messiah just means anointed one. And all the kings of Israel were anointed. They were anointed ones. But the whole of the scripture is anticipating the Messiah, not just a Messiah, not just a anointed one, but the anointed one. Who would come? Um, just like with all the kings, there were really good kings in Israel, but none of them were quite there. None of them were what the world needed. None of them could have fulfilled all of God's uh, commands and promises and all of these things. So God actually became a man and became king himself. And uh, that, that's the, one of the many glories of the gospel. But let's look at our text in Matthew 3 to get a little bit more of a full picture as to what is being said here regarding Jesus as the Messiah. Um, So again, this is something that we can, like, we don't have to pull it out of left field anywhere. We can look right in this text and see what it means for Jesus to be baptized and the connection of him as the Messiah. So right in verse 17, um, I'm sorry, let's, verse 16. So Jesus is baptized, says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So there are two Old Testament passages that God the Father quotes to God the Son, two Old Testament passages, together. The first is, this is my beloved Son. That's from Psalm chapter two. The second is, with whom I am well pleased, which is Isaiah 42. So if you want to turn in your Bible right now, go to Psalm chapter two. Psalm two. And it's a fairly short Psalm, so I'm going to read it. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So that's where the quote is, you are my son. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel, like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So you can see... God the Father quoting that psalm at the moment of Jesus' baptism is clearly a connection to Jesus' kingship as the Messiah. Clearly. Because that psalm, like that right in the middle of that psalm, is what the Father quotes to him. You are my son. This this is what it's connected to. You are my son. So what we see, what I want us to see, is in we see two aspects of Jesus' messianic ministry in the two passages that the father quotes to the son. First, we see his his kingship as a, as, a, as a lion, like a lion-like king. And then we see his servanthood, his servant's heart, his gentleness like a lamb in the second half in Isaiah 42, which we'll get to in a second. But I want us to just camp out on this um, for just a second, the, the aspect of his kingship like a lion here. Because clearly in this psalm, like, no one's messing with this king. No one is messing with this king. That all the kings of the earth are conspiring. Let's break apart their bonds. God's law. We hate God's law because we love our sin. And it's just like they feel the weight of God's law on them, crushing them and binding them. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to rebel against God. He's not going to be able to tell us what to do. And what does it say in that psalm? What does God do? He sits in the heavens and He laughs. He laughs. Who are you, oh man? Who are you? I'm the God of the universe. You can do nothing against me. And, and you see the sun, like at the, the end of that psalm, kiss the sun, it's like worship, pay, pay homage to the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath, the, the wrath of the sun is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So that's a picture. We need to believe everything the Bible says about Jesus. Everything the Bible says about Jesus. And we're going to talk a little bit in a, in a minute about, about um, how gentle and kind and loving he is. Absolutely. We don't want to minimize that. But at the same time, our culture likes to glorify that part of Jesus and downplay this part of Jesus. But Jesus is the king of the world, he is God in the flesh, he's not just your buddy. He's the king. He's to be worshipped and obeyed. We are to believe his words and take them to, to the world, starting with our family and our neighbors and our friends and, and believing for ourselves these truths because he is king. And we don't want his anger. We don't. You do not want the anger of the son against you because he is king. <clears throat> and... and What some people so earlier I mentioned that the anointing of Jesus as king was at his baptism, and there's some Christians that want to um, to take his anointing as king and his actual being king as being completely separate with thousands of years in between. Meaning that yeah, Jesus has been anointed and inaugurated as king now, but he's actually not going to be king of the world till later when he comes back. that's not, that's not the case. I don't, I don't see that in the Bible at all. I, I see that Jesus is the king now. When he ascended, that's, that's echoing Daniel 7, where, like, when we went through our series in Daniel, I'm sure you guys have, uh, those of you who are here for that, you, you remember, that the, ancient, that the Son of Man is presented, riding on the clouds of heaven, presented before the Ancient of Days. So he's not going to earth. He's going from earth to heaven. Son of Man, going to heaven, before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him dominion over the whole earth, all tribes, tongues, nations, languages, that they should serve him. And that is directly connected with the Great Commission. Right when he's ascending, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey me. Why? All authority has been given to me, i.e., I'm king. I'm king. Therefore, tell them to obey me. Teach them to obey me. So I think this is a very clear concept in the Bible that we need to get straight. And unfortunately, um, over the last couple hundred years, there's been a, a system of thought that commonly goes by the name dispensationalism, which, um, while we have many good brothers and sisters who, who believe that way, um, I, I think it's dangerous in some aspects. And I think it actually prevents us from understanding the whole picture of the Bible. Not, not everything, but, but a lot. Um, And and I I really hope that we can just see the Bible doesn't talk about things like that in that way. And so we'll we'll get into a little bit more of that in a second. All right. So now let's talk about the second half of that quotation, Isaiah 42. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 42. So if you remember, said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Or another way you could translate that is in whom my soul delights. And that's exactly what we see here in Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street." A bruised reed he shall not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. So here I want us to see just some some aspects of Jesus that are, that are just so glorious, again, uh, in his humility and his love. So we see he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. That, that shows his humility. He's not proclaiming himself around. Uh, and in fact, that's the interesting thing about Jesus. When Jesus came, he actually tried to conceal his messianic identity many times because he was coming to accomplish the death, burial, and resurrection and then have his disciples and us proclaim him. So it's it's pretty rare that he's proclaiming himself. Other than to the Pharisees, he does that a lot. And a lot of, that's really just an indictment on them. He's showing, you know, you don't really have the Father because if you did, you would accept me. Um, But he didn't go around bringing attention to himself, like, look at me, look at me. He could have done that, and he's the only person (laughs) in the whole universe who could have done that and it would have not been a sin. Um, But he didn't. He came humbly. And let his followers proclaim him. Which is what our job is. Um, so we see his humility, then we see his, his gentleness. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. His gentleness. And like that, that's us, guys. That's us as sinners. We are bruised reeds. And we are faintly burning wicks as Christians. That's what we are. Because we're weak. We sin. But if we are his, he does not look at us in judgment because he took that himself. He looks at us with gentleness and compassion if we are his, with compassion. He knows we're sinners. He knows that. That's why he died. While we were still sinners, he died for us. So if you're struggling with sin and it's just something like you're, God, I, I need victory over this, and I just, I just can't, I feel powerless. And you feel like that, that, that overwhelming sense of guilt, like he, he's just holding it over your head. That's not what he's doing if you're his. He's looking at you, at you with eyes of compassion because you've been forgiven in Christ. And it's only when we recognize that and we come to that warm love of God that we actually find freedom from our sin. As long as we put a distance between ourselves and God because we feel like he's not gonna accept us until we get things right in our life, we'll never get victory over sin because it's only through connection to God that we have victory over sin. And that's why he made the way. Jesus is our high priest. So if you sin, if you, if you sin, the very next moment, you can run to God. The very next moment, you can run to God and he will accept you with open arms. If you confess your sin to him, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sin. And, and like this goes completely against the way that we think about things. Because we think if that's true, then like if, if I tell someone that, then they're just going to keep on sinning. No, that's not how the gospel works. If you run to God for forgiveness, knowing he, he's already forgiven you in Christ, that is what changes you. That is what allows you to live in victory. Because we are bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks. And he isn't gonna, he, he's going to fix the reed. He's not going to destroy it. He's going to fix it. And he's not going to quench the faintly burning wick. He's going to ignite it so that it burns even brighter. That's what he does. God is a redeeming God. He doesn't throw things away. He redeems. He redeems and then we see in this passage that he's just. He will, bring, he will faithfully bring forth justice to the nation. So he's completely righteous in everything he does. And then he's patient. He will not grow faint or discouraged until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. So right now, he's being patient. Right now, he's being patient. And he's not going to grow discouraged until he's established justice in the earth. Until his gospel, his law... The law of Christ has been proclaimed in the whole world. That's the commission He gave us to do, and He's not going to grow faint or weary until that is accomplished. So I hope we see that. I hope we see just how glorious Christ is here. There's more I wanted to say, but I think for the sake of time, if we're going to get to the second point, we'll need to move forward here. But if you move, um, if you look look at verse one still in Isaiah 42 bring up one last thing. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. I have put my spirit upon him. Okay? Remember, this is the passage. Like right after, right after in whom my soul delights is I have put my spirit upon him. Flip over to Matthew 3. What do we see? We see the spirit of God descending on him like a dove. Okay? So a fulfillment of this passage is happening right before our eyes in Matthew 3. I will put my spirit upon him. That's what we see here in his baptism. The spirit of God comes. And what that means, the, the spirit of God, it's, it's for the sake of his messianic ministry. It's not like he didn't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit before that. This, this is a special moment where the Holy Spirit is coming on the son and we're, we're supposed to see this as an acknowledgement that this is the promised king and the Messiah. God's spirit now rests on him. And he is going to to accomplish all that we just read in Psalm two and Isaiah 42. That's the connection we're supposed to draw. Just seeing that full orb picture of what Jesus is doing. It's it's glorious. So the final point. So we, we mentioned how the main thing I think is that this is the anointing of Jesus as the Messiah. The second, which is, I think, equally glorious, is that Jesus is reenacting the story of Israel in his life. He's replaying the story of Israel in his life. So I'm going to bring out a couple things here I'll, I'll, I'll read off, and um, we're going to compare Israel's history to Jesus's life, and we're just going to see these connections, I think, quite clearly. So first of all, Jesus had a miraculous birth, right? Miraculous birth, virgin birth. But so did Israel. The nation of Israel had a miraculous birth. It wasn't a virgin birth, but Sarah had already gone through menopause. She could not give birth. She was like 90. (laughs) She was quite old. And Abraham was nearly 100. That's a miraculous birth, all right. (laughs) That is. Um, Everything's miraculous about that. So we have a miraculous birth, okay? Then we have um, Jesus fleeing to Egypt, for the sake of protection, and Israel fleeing to Egypt for the sake of protection. Remember the famine and uh, Jacob and his 12 sons? They all fled to Egypt for the sake of protection. And then they left Egypt and came to the promised land. Jesus did that. He came back to Israel, and so did um, Israel. They, they crossed the Red Sea and came back to, to the promised land. Then we see they, they crossed the Red Sea, right? They crossed the Red Sea, This ties to the baptism here because remember, the whole point of Jewish baptism was to symbolize the crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan for Gentiles. But now Jesus is doing this in himself. Jesus is crossing the Red Sea. And we we know that's the connection because what happens immediately after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days. What happened immediately after Israel crossed the Red Sea? They went into the wilderness for 40 years, right? You see the connection? And then what happens once Jesus is out of the wilderness? How many disciples does he choose? 12. How many tribes of Israel? 12, right? And most glorious of all, which this is the one we're, we're gonna really focus in on here, is Israel in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, is called God's son. They are called God's son. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the only begotten son. Israel was an adopted son for the sake of the mission and the covenant of God. But Jesus is that, but also he's the ontological son. That's a big word, just meaning he's from the same essence as the father. He, He is truly God's son. In essence, truly God's son. Not just adopted as such. The the role of being God's son is an office that Jesus fulfilled. But it is also the reality for him. He actually is God's son. Unlike Israel, failing in the office of God's son, they they were just adopted. They weren't actually God's son. Does that make sense? And It's a little complicated, but hopefully that's clear. So we see the true son of God is Jesus. And the reason this is so significant is because Jesus came amongst many things that he did and accomplished. He came to fulfill the mission that Israel failed to do. So I'm going to read for you just a quick passage in Exodus chapter 19. This is right before he gives the Ten Commandments here. And it says in chapter 19 of Exodus. Um, Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. They were meant to be the people to whom we're in a right relationship with God and other nations could look at them and see this is what God is like and this is what we're supposed to be like. This is what humanity is supposed to be like, looking at Israel. Now, just a quick reading through the Old Testament would show you that they utterly failed. Utterly failed at that. Completely failed. There were a few highlights, but most of the time it was awful, which is why they have gone into exile so much throughout the story. is because they failed to keep the covenant of God. They failed to be priest to the nations. And what's a priest? A priest is a mediator. They were supposed to be the people that, that, that connected the rest of the world to God. That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to be the mediators. Um, not in a, a final sense as in like... had to go through Israel to be in a relationship with God, but in the sense that they were supposed to, to, in the same way that we are priests, we are supposed to be priests to the world, to show them what God is like and bring them to God, be the mediators in that sense, pointing them to the ultimate mediator, who is Christ. Um, They failed at that mission. They failed at being lights, uh, a light to the nation. But what does Jesus do? Jesus comes as the light, as the high priest. Jesus comes to fulfill and take up the mantle of what they failed to do. They failed to keep the covenant? Well, guess what? Jesus keeps the covenant. He fulfills the law. He does all of it himself. And what I want us to understand is that Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel that's where it was all going the whole time and i'm going to show you some passages of scripture so you see that and then we're going to draw some application and we will be done but i really want us to see this because i think it is extremely glorious so romans chapter 2 verses 25 to 29 says for the circumcision indeed is a value for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law but if you break the law your circumcision becomes uncircumcision so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically circumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code for, and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. So what Paul's doing in this passage is he is defining, no, just because you are, a, just because you are physically circumcised, which was the sign of the covenant that God made with Israel, um, it doesn't mean that um, you're in the right with God. It doesn't mean you're a Jew. So he, he's saying you're not actually a Jew. You're not actually God's people if you're just merely circumcised. You need to be circumcised in heart. You need to obey Torah. You need to obey the law to be counted as Israel, which flies in the face of what the Jews believed in that day. And f- quite frankly, and I don't mean to be offensive here, but it does fly in the face of what many dispensationalists say, where they want to hold the church and Israel completely separate and God has two different peoples. I, I just don't see that in the Bible. Um, again, you can be a good faithful Christian and, and believe that, but I-, I just, I think missing a lot of what the Bible is trying to show us here if we if we go that route. Um but what I want us to why I brought us here is because there's only one Jew in the entire world who ever kept the law. Only one Jew who ever kept the law. That was Jesus. He's the only one who ever completely kept Torah. Only one. He is the only true Jew Isaiah 49. Um, I'll just read it for you guys. I know we've been hopping around a bit, but um, so this is again just it's in the same. Um, we read Isaiah 42, and it talks about the servant a lot. Um, that that theme carries on through the entire book of Isaiah. Sometimes the the, the servant is talked about as Israel, the nation of Israel, and they're called unfaithful, like my unfaithful servant. But then you see the servant being talked about as this singular person who is very, uh, very faithful and and is going to save the world. So listen to this. Isaiah 49. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. So this is... This is Jesus talking. That's what I'm going to argue here. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is is with Yahweh and my recompense with God and now Yahweh says he who formed me in the womb to be his servant to bring back to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him for i am honored in the eyes of Yahweh and my god has become my strength and if you just go on this is all talking about this servant this person is going to bring about the redemption of Israel okay this and he is called Israel the father calls him Israel so, to bring this all to a head, I, I want to go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and this will be the last scripture that I reference here to summarize what, and then we'll get to some, um, conclu- the conclusion and how this can affect us. So, Galatians three sixteen. 16. Um, in this context, Paul is discussing the promises of God and, and how the promises of God are fulfilled and come to his people, whether it's through obeying the law or through believing the promise made to Abraham. And in chapter three, he says this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, promises. So that would be the promises of being a light to the nations, justification by faith, um, the land promises, all of the promises that God made to Abraham, okay? Okay were made to Abraham and his offspring. Continue on with the verse, verse 16 in Galatians 3. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So to summarize, what Paul is saying here is all of God's promises to his people, to to Abraham, were made to two people. All of the promises were made to two people, Abraham and Jesus, That's what he's saying. All of God's promises for his people were made to Abraham, who never actually saw them fulfilled, but ultimately to Jesus, which is where it gets so practical for us as I'm drawing this conclusion to the sermon now. We are in Christ, and all of God's promises find their yes in him. So the glory of this that I want us to see that I think the scriptures and what God wants us to see from this is that Christ is the fulfillment of all of it. And we are to look to him for all of those promises to be fulfilled. All of the land promises, all of the promises of, of, um, of being fruitful and having um, eternal life and ev- everything, all of it is all caught up in him. And he, through his kingdom is going to bring that about in the world, ultimately when he comes back in the consummation, when the new heavens and new earth are here. This is where all those promises will be completely and fully realized for all of God's people, on a new earth where where righteousness dwells and no sin, there's no death. That is our hope. That is our hope. And the, the reason this is so practical for us is because when you read the Old Testament, when you read the Old Covenant, and you see these promises made to his people. They are for us through Christ. They are for us through Christ. And this is why the Jews got so mad at the Christians. Because they're like, no, those are for us. Those promises are for us. And what God is saying is, no, you aren't really Israel. You're only Israel if you have the faith of Abraham. Christ is true Israel. And therefore, because we are in him, we are counted as co-heirs, we're counted as true Israel in him. And it's, it's, it's glorious. And, and, you know, a lot of, some people find that offensive. But I just think that's what the New Testament is saying. And, it, and it's glorious. It's wonderful. Because this, that allows us to read the entirety of the Bible and just see it's all about Christ from beginning to end. It's not, we're not supposed to read it and go, oh, I want some land over there. Like, no, that's not, it's about Christ. And guess what? You're going to get the land. It's called the new earth. That's what it is. That's what it was anticipating the whole time. That's what it was about. So like, um, like I read at the beginning, where we see Christ and we're transformed, this is what I want us when we read the Bible. Like we should be seeing Christ and just see how marvelous and wonderful he is. Just all that he did, there's so many layers and aspects to what he did for us that there's, we, could just, we could just bask in it forever and still not completely grasp all that he has done. So, so read your Bibles and believe what you read, but see it through the lens of Christ and what he did. Because that's what it's all about from beginning to end. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for Christ and what he did. Um, These are are deep waters that we we have gone through today, Lord. But we see the glory of Christ. We see he is our Messiah. He is our king. He is the servant. He is true Israel. He's the one who all of your promises are yes and amen in him. All of them are. And praise you, Lord, that we are in him as well. And we get to share in these things. We are so unworthy. We are... We are sinners, we're broken reeds, we're, we're bruised reeds, we're, we're candles that are, that are burning out quickly. But I praise you, God, through your spirit, through your word that you ignite us and you heal us and you bind us up. May we bring this gospel of Christ and how, how glorious he is to our neighbors and to our children and to our family, to our enemies, May we bring it to the ends of the world because we know you will be patient. You will be patient. You will see the great commission accomplished and we get to take part in it, Lord. We know there is much evil in this world to be conquered through Christ and the gospel. And we can't conquer it all ourselves, but we can, through your spirit, conquer the evil in us. So we pray that you would do that in us today, Lord. We believe your word. We would see Christ as the most glorious We ask all of this in his name through your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church, check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. Or if you want to find our gathering times, location, or any other information about New City, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.